Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Tuesday, July 7th. The Dow is down, Amazon's tax bill is going up, and we're focused on what dominoes fall next in the Jeffrey Epstein saga. Earlier today, New York regulators fined Deutsche Bank $150 million for, quote, significant compliance failures related to its business dealings with Jeffrey Epstein. It was the first such enforcement action against any financial institution related to the late pedophile financier, but it may not be the last. That's because the Deutsche Bank fine comes just five days after longtime Epstein confidant Galene Maxwell was arrested in New Hampshire, and one day after she was transferred to a New York City jail cell, one that probably has more cameras and security than does a Swiss bank. Now, Maxwell is being charged for her alleged role in sex trafficking, but because of her close relationship with Epstein, she is believed to perhaps have more information about which of Epstein's financial relationships were strictly business and which were something more, something worse. When Epstein died in prison last year, there were lots of news reports about how certain tycoons were breathing a sigh of relief. Maxwell's arrest, though, means there could be some very sleepless nights this summer in the Hamptons. In 15 seconds, we'll dig deeper with business insider's Megan Morris, who has been writing for the past year on Epstein's business ties. But first, this. We're joined now by Megan Morris, senior finance reporter for Business Insider. Let's start here. Jeffrey Epstein obviously had lots of connections on Wall Street, both socially and professionally. Is there reason to believe that some of these relationships went beyond seeing somebody at a cocktail party or maybe helping them manage their taxes? We have uncovered in the last year about Jeffrey Epstein's finances suggests that there is a large network of Wall Street folks who were friendly with him, who saw him at his townhouse in New York, who invested alongside him, who took his donations for their charities and who donated to his foundations as well. There's a very complex network of entities associated with Jeffrey Epstein and Wall Street figures that I'm not sure that anyone has gotten to the root of. But the relationship between Jeffrey and Wall Street is probably more complex than anyone can comprehend. We talk about these Wall Street ties, but that's a banker or a private equity executive. It's never been quite clear what Epstein himself did. He wasn't a stockbroker. He never seemed to make major trades for anybody. He wasn't an official licensed accountant. The reference is always tax strategies. I hate to say it so bluntly, but is this essentially he helped people hide their taxes? He was very creative. He was known in his first couple of jobs, both those he worked on Wall Street and the work that he did for private clients being kind of a savant in the tax avoidance strategy category. So perhaps he continued that for a number of wealthy clients. Perhaps he had other ways to make money. But from what I know about Jeffrey's beginnings, he was very well known on the street for some of those creative tax strategies. And that endeared him to a number of high profile Wall Streeters, some of whom still uh, will not reveal themselves. Let's talk about what will and won't be revealed. So one of the people you've written about over the last year is Leon Black, who runs Apollo Global Management. And if people don't know, it's it's one of the largest private equity firms in the world. Leon Black has said that he used Epstein kind of forced tax purposes, etc. Obviously, Black donated about $10 million to Epstein's charity after he was arrested and pleaded guilty in Florida to the underage prostitution charges. He's never quite explained why. What, if anything, have you learned in the last year since Leon himself won't really talk about this. 
Some of Leon's footprint points to closer ties with Epstein, again, than we'll probably get to the root of. For example, immediately after Epstein was arrested, I realized that he was a director on Leon and his wife's family foundation for a number of years, including through 2012, well after he was in jail on charges, including procuring a minor for prostitution. The Blacks have never really explained this. They said it was a paperwork error. They have not sent me updated paperwork. Have you asked for that paperwork? More than a dozen times, including this year. So I have sent in plenty of inquiries. But Apollo is a publicly traded company. This isn't just a group of folk investing, you know, a couple billionaires' money. Are you surprised that there hasn't been more blowback? Leon still runs this firm, and it just seems that everyone's just okay with his lack of explanation on this. I am shocked. I have been shocked and continued to be shocked. I queried about a dozen institutional investors who are among some of Apollo's biggest limited partners, those who have been investing in Apollo funds across strategies for years. The best I got back in August and again in October, when I double checked, was that institutional investors were looking into things and none of them at least publicly cut ties with Apollo or, or with Mr. Black himself. Let's also talk about the Dubins. Glenn Dubin, who is a major hedge fund manager. What's the most interesting thing you've learned about that relationship? The relationship between the Dubins is not solely concentrated on Glenn's relationship with Jeffrey, although it does go back a number of years. It includes kind of a web of different hedge fund investments, both in Highbridge, one of the hedge funds that Glenn co-founded, as well as a couple of other funds, one of which advised Jeffrey to invest into. The relationship between Jeffrey and the Dubin family, though, is actually multi-generational. Jeffrey dated Eva, Glenn's wife, for a number of years in the 1980s. He was very close by many accounts with their oldest daughter, although perhaps not with their two younger children. I wrote extensively about that relationship over the last year. By the way, when you say close, the reports are he wanted to marry her, the daughter. Correct. I published in December that at one point, Jeffrey mused to friends that he would consider marrying her. Again, going back to our discussion about tax avoidance strategies, because he wanted her to inherit his estate, including his island. And the best way to avoid inheritance taxes would be to pass on one's estate to a spouse. Obviously, the investigations into Epstein, at least the ones we know about, you know, that he was arrested for and Galene Maxwell now invested for, do have to do with sexual assault, rape, etc. Is there any indication that there is an investigation into the financial pieces of this, what Epstein may or may not have done when it comes to taxes, and also if people in this orbit are at all tied into the more serious sex charges? Sure. The Virgin Islands seems to think so. Um, that government is investigating his estate, trying to figure out where the money came from. We don't really have a timeline on when we'll know more. Today's settlement between the U.S. government and Deutsche Bank also seemed to indicate that the federal government has been looking into Epstein's money, not just where he got it from, but also who was managing it, where it was housed and whose fingerprints were on it. So I expect that we'll see some more, but no timeline yet. You go over to uh, New York City jail and you are in the uh, little room with just the metal table with Galene Maxwell. And you can ask her any one question and she's going to actually answer it truthfully to you. What do you want to know? I would want to know what the most surprising thing to her, a British socialite who grew up around wealth and by all accounts continued to surround herself with it for years, what surprised her the most about Jeffrey Epstein's finances? Megan Morris, thank you so much for joining us. You can read her stuff at Business Insider. There is a ton of it on Epstein and Maxwell and everything else. Thanks again. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is TikTok and more specifically, how much longer we'll be able to watch TikTok. 
Secretary of State Mike Pompeo last night went on to Fox News to talk about the possibility of China's government using local tech companies to do things like spy on U.S. citizens. Here's the exchange with Laura Ingram specifically related to TikTok. With respect to Chinese apps on people's cell phones, I can assure you the United States will get this one right too, Laura. I don't want to get out. I don't want to get out in front of the president, but it's something we're looking at. Would you recommend that people download that app on their phones tonight, tomorrow, anytime currently? Only if you want your private information in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. For its part, TikTok responded today that the company is led by a recently installed American CEO and that it takes user privacy seriously. The bottom line, it's hard to imagine President Trump would ban such a popular app in an election year. But on the other hand, it's worth remembering that a large percentage of American TikTok users are too young to vote. We're also watching Facebook, which this afternoon met with groups that had organized a massive ad boycott against the social network. Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg got ahead of the meeting earlier in the day by pledging the company would get, quote, better and faster at removing hate speech, and also insisted the move was not because of financial considerations. And as a special thing for you guys, we'll post a special conversation with the boycott organizers who were on the call. And finally, we're watching Quibi. Well, okay, not really. Basically, it seems no one is watching Quibi, and that's the problem. The short-form streaming app offered free 90-day trial memberships to early users back in April, but the last of those expired this month. Hollywood is paying close attention to what happens next, given estimates that only a measly 1.5 million people signed up for the free service, putting the entire effort's future in doubt. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Strawberry Sunday day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.